And let the peace of God be with all of you. I'm very happy to be here with you once more. And uh, you know, brethren, we are living in the last times. We at least know that if we go by voting by majority, there have been six restorations of the Roman Empire. There's only one left to come. And it's coming soon. And by the way, Mr. Weston points that out in this telecast that was announced today because the war in Ukraine just opened the door for Germany to be armed again, which was prophesied that we never knew how it was going to happen. And it can happen overnight, changes like that, brethren. So, I, Jesus Christ, speaking of this time, brethren, in Matthew 24, says, Iniquity will abound, and the love of many will wax cold. And wow, how true are those words. Iniquity abounds by every side we turn in this civilization, like never before in the history of humankind, thanks to, I would say thanks, no, I said because of technology. And then iniquity abounds, brethren. And uh, I would like to share with you some lessons here that are good for all of us. They are just there in the book. And uh, since iniquity abounds, iniquity means transgression of the law. I don't like very much the, law, the word lawlessness because I think it's kind of ambiguous. It's not very clear. But when you speak of the transgression of the law coming to the fullness of iniquity, then we know what's, what we're talking about. So just to help us, brethren, in this time we're living, we're going to see that God wants us to look at sin from his point of view. What does that mean? And not from the point of view, human point of view. Good and evil. You can look at it from, at it from the human point of view or from God's point of view. Let's see. In chapter 3 of the book of Genesis, we find how God had put, in chapter 2, we know that God put two trees there, the tree of life and the tree of good and evil. And he let them free to choose, like we are free even today to choose. Of course, God says to us, choose life so that you may live, you and your descendants. And for us, that means eternal life, of course. So let's, let's see how the, there are so many, so, so much wisdom concentrated in a few words that we have read and reread for years and generations, brethren, in chapter 3 of the, of the book of Genesis in verse 4. Let's see the encounter of Eve with the serpent, with Satan the devil. He's the old serpent like is described in Jer Apocaly uh, Revelation. Excuse me, brethren, I start mixing languages here. <laughs> Uh, Revelation chapter 12 verse 9 is the old serpent, you know, Satan the devil. And here, in chapter 3 and verse 4 of the book of Genesis, it says, And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Because the woman said to the serpent, God said to us, You know, if we eat this, we are going to die. We know he is the father of lies. And he said, You will surely, 
you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, what the devil was saying, and that's what humanity has been doing since, is listen, you take off this tree, and you can discern by yourself what's good and evil, and you don't need God, because you can do it. And they also made her believe that she was not going to die. So it was quite a deceitful ability of the serpent. He was the more, more cunning of all the beasts. So he was saying, you just, you just can be like God. He doesn't want you to be like him, but actually that's what you will obtain. You will be like him. You, you can decide what's good and what's evil, and then you don't need God. And that's exactly what humans are doing today. You know, they are totally put in ignorance the laws of God and the Bible. I was, re- I was listening to a radio program of, um, I better not mention, but it was a, a famous uh, Protestant denomination in an interview on the radio. And they didn't know how to answer the interviewer answering them because the, their church is being divided and people that are all for this new law that has come, what they call respect for marriage. Marriage of the same sex, either women or men. And they, they, they couldn't answer the question because the question of the interviewer is what, why are, is your church being divided? Of course, there are still some that have some concept of what God teaches about this. But frankly, the world, the world today is oblivious. The, Satan has managed to make people depart from the knowledge of God's word in an amazing way. He has tremendous influence now because people have lost all discernment. Well, now, so it's interesting that the new woman said in verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that means the desire of the flesh. Those are the ways Humankind chooses what's right and what is wrong. You know, LGBT is not based on the law of God. It's based on the desires of the flesh. Whatever your flesh dictates to you is good. You are free to do it. And now the government is backing you up. And that's what we're getting there. We're getting to the fullness of iniquity, my brethren. Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's how God called, how he describe the situation of Sodom and Gomorrah. They have reached a point of no return. And you know the dialogue with Abraham and God trying to save some righteous one from there. But every year the percentage of population of America that completely agrees with that LGBT something else, I, I don't know the, the letter, but you know what I'm talking about. Every year the, the, the percentage increases especially when young people come into the scene because they less and less will have any idea of what God teaches about it. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that means it will satisfy my flesh. That's exactly the way people decide today what's good and evil. And then it says that it was pleasant to the eyes. Oh, if it looks good, then it's good, you know. No other 
foundation to discern that it was pleasant to the eyes and uh, desirable to make one wise. That means I would decide what's good and evil in my own life. Nobody can rule me. And every nation and every culture today, that's exactly how they function, you know. They decide, they try to agree sometimes in the Constitution, but they are far away from God's, God's law, you know. They don't take it as the foundation for the Constitution of nations. It's completely ignored. People decide by themselves based on these things. What's pleasant to the flesh, what's pleasant to the eyes, and makes you feel important. We can't decide our own destiny. Now, there is a statement that is very important. You know, God said, after they, uh, he cast them out of the garden, in chapter 3 of the book of Genesis, let's see what God says. In verse 22, that's a very interesting statement by God. He says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. This is Elohim talking, you know, in plural. This is what today we know is God the Father and God the Son. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. That's Elohim. And then he says, it's verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. Remember they say, let us make man in our image. There are two. The Jews do not understand that. We understand it. It's one God, and Christ solved the problem very easily. He said, the Father and me, we are one. And that solves the problem that many cannot understand. Then the Lord said, behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. Why does God say that? Adam and Eve now are like God. They can they know what's good and evil. How did they find out, my friends? They found out by experiment, by experiencing what was good for the flesh, good for the eyes, to feel important, and then by suffering the consequences of sin, of shame and, sh- and hiding, etc., which... Today we can tell people continue to decide what's right in their own eyes and then they ignore completely the law of God. They enjoy the passing pleasure of sin. That's what Paul calls sin in Hebrews 11. Our passing pleasure because it pleases the flesh, it pleases the eyes, and it makes you feel important because I do whatever I want to do. But it has lasting consequences. And that's why civilizations come to a point where the fullness of iniquity destroyed those civilizations like before the flood. It was completely every thought of the man was continually only evil. Evil started taking up until the civilization was completely rotten. And that happened also to Sodom and Gomorrah, and we are getting there. And God calls our society Sodom and Gomorrah. And that was... And that happened with, with uh, Canaan. God said to Abraham, your descendants will be, you know, pilgrims 
or foreigners for 400 years, because until then, the fullness of iniquity of the Amorite will have not been reached. Been reached. So God knew it where they were going. So why did God say, man knows good and evil like we do? Did God want to hide something from Adam and Eve? Brethren, remember there was another tree there called the tree of life. Through the tree of life, God could, humans could look at sin from God's point of view, not from their human point of view. We create this blindness. What is pleasant to the eyes and the flesh? What makes me feel important? God wanted them to learn to discern good and evil from God's point of view. And they learn good and evil by experiment. So how did God do that? Remember one thing. God is eternal, brethren. And his law also is eternal. It's the expression of his character. You read that in Psalm 111. The law of God is eternal. So God has perfect vision, 2020, from the eternity that precedes us, that we cannot fully understand, is beyond our capacity to understand that God has always existed. But he has a perfect vision, and it's written that he can say the end from the beginning. And then he has vision from the past eternity until the eternity that is ahead of us. Imagine the dimension of the capacity of God's vision. And we know he knows exactly. Like when a, a, a ship comes out of a harbor, if it loses its course, it's going to go very far from where the real port they wanted to arrive. To arrive. God from his throne can tell exactly what's going to happen when someone transgresses his law. So God knows good and evil by discernment. And, he, and men learn good and evil by experiment. And it would be very good for us to understand and be so close to God that we can discern good and evil from his point of view by discernment. How can that be reached? I will tell you. I won't go to all those scriptures, but it's very simple. The tree of life represents the Holy Spirit, brethren. If Adam and Eve have chosen that way, they would have what we have now today. We, in chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews, the Apostle Paul says, we have liberty to enter the Holy of Holies. We can go all the way to the courtroom of our Father in the Spirit and from there, we can acquire his point of view. And I give you an example. You can find that in Psalm 73. In Psalm 73, is written the following, my dear friends. You know the psalmist here, who is Asaph, I think, yes. He's wondering, how, how, how come people prosper when they are transgressing God's laws? How come they get rich? And it seems that nothing goes wrong for them. And we are trying to follow God's way, like he says, we're chastised every morning. God put certain tri trials and tests for us 
to teachers to walk their narrow path. And it's hard to walk the narrow path of the law of God. That's the narrow path. The young man asked Christ, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? He said, if you want to enter life, keep the, co- the commandments. And then someone asked him also before that, are many the ones that are saved? And he said, only those that enter by the narrow path. They chose the narrow path and the straight door, they enter into the kingdom of God. And there are very few. So it's the same thing. The narrow path and the narrow gate are the Ten Commandments. It's the way you look in Psalm 119. One after the other is called the way. The way to enter the kingdom of God is the obedience to God. So here the psalmist, let's look at Psalm 73. Truly God is good, is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And we can tell today many of them are very prosperous. And then in verse 13, he says, and this is the way we walk, we try to walk to please God. He says, surely I have cleansed my, my heart in vain. We have repented. We try to follow God. And washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastised every morning. So how come I'm suffering when I'm trying to obey God? And how people in the world, they're transgressing, they are using what's right in their own eyes, what pleases their flesh, and they are prospering. How come? And then what happened? Listen to what he says here. In verse 16 he says, When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. He decided to go up like there where we have now the right to go because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and because we have the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what God wanted for Abba I want you to come near me through the Spirit and look at sin from my point of view and avoid sin by discernment and not know sin by experiment. And that's exactly, and it applies to all of us. And it's important to look at that that way, and I will show you a little bit more about it. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. You remember in chapter 4 of the book of Revelation, we can have a graphic illustration of what I'm trying to explain to you. In chapter 4 of the book of Revelation, after the apostle uh, John, the beloved disciple, writes... Inspired by Christ, the letters to the seven churches. In chapter 4, it says, After these things, chapter 4, verse 1, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, the throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Brethren, we have exactly the same privilege today. We envision 
because God has revealed this to us through the Spirit, we can approach God's throne. And Paul says we have, we can go boldly before the throne of God, to the Holy of Holies. And what did God show to John about human civilization? He showed them the end of human civilization and the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. And that's how we can look at the future. And now God is teaching us lessons by suffering, you know. Sometimes we suffer because we make mistakes. We're going to see that in a moment. We see some examples. Sometimes we suffer because it's necessary to polish our character. And that we have, we have told that before, but in Hebrews, in Hebrews you have an example, my dear brethren. Let's look at this in the book of Hebrews. Christ was perfect. He never sinned, but he was in the flesh, brethren. And he had to suffer to learn some lessons himself. Look what he says. It's pretty amazing. In chapter 5, of the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 7 of the book of Hebrews. 5, verse 7, he says, Who in the days of his flesh, remember he was God, and the word was made flesh. When he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. So he looked at temptations and the inclinations the devil tempted him. After 40 days in the desert, you know, without eating, he tempted him. He was hungry. Turned these stones into bread. He had to deny himself to obey God and not Satan the devil or his primary impulses. Verse 8, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. So, that's what God teaches us. Sometimes we learn obedience, often by the things that we suffer, brethren. Either consequences of our mistakes, or sometimes it's not the consequence of a mistake, it's the purpose of God to perfect our character. We have made a study about that. It's not the subject today, but first, just for you to understand, brethren. So, God wants us to learn and look at sin from his point of view. And that's what Satan deceived Eve, to look at it from the human point of view, what's just before her eyes, what pleases her flesh and her eyes, and what was good according to the pride of life. When we approach God... Like in Psalm 73 says, well, it was difficult to understand why the prosperity of the wicked until he entered the sanctuary of God. So God invites us to stay close to him, especially in this time and age, so we can look at sin from his point of view, and we avoid sin by discernment, not by experiment. I hope you understand exactly what I'm trying to convey to you. For example, if you were above the North Atlantic in a balloon and you see the Titanic going, sailing straight to the iceberg, you know what's going to happen there without being in the Titanic. You only experiment the deviation 
that they took probably for a short cut to arrive in New York and set a new world record. I understand they, they changed the, the course. If you look at it from a balloon, you see, wow, you know what's going to happen. And you don't need to be in the Titanic. God wants us to look at sin the same way. From his point of view, he can tell the end from the beginning. If we are close to God, we will not, we will not be deceived or we will, we will not be overcome by our own tendencies. The flesh, the lust of the eyes and the flesh and the pride of life. So, that's something that God wants us to understand, my friends. And we will be able to avoid a lot of trouble when we have a self-control. And we say, one moment, I'm going to get close to God. I'm going to study the Bible. I'm going to ask for counsel to see if this decision is correct or is not correct. If it's according to God's law or it's not according to God's law. So, there you have an example. You don't need to be in the Titanic to show what's going to happen. And it's the same thing. When we believe what God says, we don't need to experiment to know that what he says is going to be fulfilled. And that's what happened to Adam and Eve and what's happened to human society until this day. And when John went to that door, open door, we can get that there, there too. And we study the Bible and God shows him what will be the end, the end of this civilization. The four horsemen of Revelation, the seven trumpets, the seven plagues, the establishment of God's kingdom on earth, the white throne judgment, the new heavens and the new earth, new Jerusalem, and eternity from there on. If we think that way, we'll be looking at things God's way, and we will reject sin by uh, what did I say? By discernment, brethren. And we avoid a lot of trouble. Now, let's see how God teaches lessons to us. Let's see, for example, some, some examples here in the Bible. Let's, let's go to the book of Genesis, my dear brethren. When Esau and Jacob were in the womb of Rebekah, they were fighting each other. And you know, God said to Rebekah, there are two nations there. And the older will serve the younger. God already knew Jacob was going to be, to inherit the birthright and not Esau, even from the time they were in the womb. And then, of course, the blessing that goes with the birthright. You see that the birthright, of course, if you read the Bible in the book of Deuteronomy, means that the firstborn receives a double portion of what the others, the other brothers received. He received twice as much as the other brethren. That's the birthright. And of course, it implies that the birth, the firstborn has to take care of the widow when the father dies, of the younger and of his sisters, he becomes the head of the clan. And the blessing, I tried to find out what it is, and people were saying things that, I say, I go to the, go to the Bible. And the Bible will tell us what it is. The blessing is the prosperity. One thing. And you see, Joseph was a prosperous man. And God blessed everything he did. And when uh, Jacob blessed his children, he said to Reuben, you will not have the preeminence 
although you are the excellence of dignity, we know that that today is the, the nation of France. And to, and it says in the book of Chronicles that the birthright was given to Joseph, but also the blessings. So, Esau was trying to recover the blessing because he sold his birthright for a dish of lentils. We don't need to go into that, uh, but you, you remember that he, he sold his birthright for a dish of lentils. Because why? Because he let the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life guide his decision. He saw that wonderful lentil, good savory, that uh, savory dish that Jacob had prepared, and he was extremely hungry. He made the wrong decision. Jacob told him, because he said, give me some of that. And he said, I give it to you if you sell to me your birthright. So the decision that Esau take was based on the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes. He said, I'm going to die. I don't need that birthright. And he despised his birthright. So it's a warning for us. God has called us to be firstborn and to be the first fruits in his plan, to inherit a much higher portion than the rest of humanity that will receive salvation also. And this firstborn teaches us a lesson. Cain was the firstborn, and he did not master himself. God himself told, told him when he was conceiving by envy and jealousy and frustration to kill his brother, you remember that. I don't go to all those scriptures, but I remind, I remind them to you. God said to Cain, sin is at the, at the door, or you can rule over it. God knew what he was thinking. He let envy guide his decision, and he killed his brother. And he lost the birthright. He is not counted in the first fruit, but his brother is. Jesus Christ called Abel the righteous Abel, and he will be among the first fruits in the first resurrection. Christ declared it by that statement. So we have good examples here. What Esau did, you know, was, by the way, he was guided by his eyes and his flesh and his appetites. Cain did the same thing. And we're going to see another example. But, you know, when the time came to... When the time came to, to receive the blessing, you, you remember Isaac told, Isaac told uh, Esau, because he was the firstborn, he was the first one who came out, and told him, go prepare me some savory food so I can bless you. And Esau went to look for some game. And you know, Rebecca heard that he was going to be blessed. But Rebecca loved Jacob and said, listen, I'm going to prepare something savory for you from a, from a goat, and you go to your father because your father was blind. He, Isaac could not see. And, uh, and you see that, you know, here in the chapter 21, 20, I, I'm telling you things that you already know. I don't need to go to those scriptures, but it takes me too much time. But, you know, Jacob, 
deceived his father. He entered, you know, his mother put this skin of goats because Esau was, had a lot of hair in his body. And he, his father asked him, are you my firstborn? He said, yes. Are you Esau? He said, yes. So he, he deceived his father because he couldn't look at him. And the name Jacob means supplanter. So God was going to use Jacob. So he used something to teach him not to be a supplanter. And God has a, a, a kind of sense of humor. When Jacob fled from Esau, who was thinking of killing him, he was going to do like Cain, you know. He was also thinking of killing Jacob because he stole the blessing. He probably thought he was going to inherit the double portion, but at least the blessing of prosperity. And the other blessing is that they would be the ancestor of the Messiah by whom all nations will be blessed. So I let the Bible interpret itself, and that might be an answer of the difference between the birthright and the blessing. But they usually will go together to the firstborn. And certainly they went together to Jacob. And Esau asked his father, don't you have, how come he came and stole it? And Jacob said, I mean, Isaac said, he will be blessed. I'm sure Isaac knew what God has declared from the time his wife was, was pregnant because they were fighting inside. And she wanted to die, and, she, and he said to her, go and consult God. And God answered and said, there are two nations inside you, and the younger and the, the older will serve the younger. That means the younger will have the first, the birthright. But he took it, you know, in a way, especially the blessing by line. And what happened to him? In chapter 29 of the book of Genesis, we know that he fled from Esau because he was thinking to kill his brother, Jacob. And he says, in chapter 29, verse 18, the book of Genesis says, Now Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, that's his uncle. Laban is the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob. It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed but a few days to him because of the love he had for her. In verse 23 says, Now it came to pass in the evening after the feast, you know, the celebrating the marriage, and it came to pass in the evening that he took, that's Laban, took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob, and he went in unto her. And he was supposed to receive Rachel, he had worked seven years to marry Rachel, and Laban, his father-in-law, deceived him in the same way that Jacob deceived his father, because he was his father-in-law, and the bride, when they come into the chamber, they had a veil, and it was dark. So Jacob couldn't tell it was not Rachel. So he was deceived because he couldn't see himself. It was his father-in-law who deceived him. You know, they, it's, it's an irony. God has sense of humor. Of course, he worked, he, uh, 
he fulfilled her week, I mean her honeymoon, seven days, and Laban said, you can work for me another seven, another seven years, I will give, I give you Rachel. He didn't have to work seven more years before he married Rachel, no. Just one week after he married Leah, that's what the Bible says. Some people believe he had to work another seven years to be able to marry Rachel. That's not the case. So that's what you find here, that the same thing he did to his father, now his father-in-law did to him, because he couldn't see. He was in the night, and Leah entered the chamber with a veil. That was the custom. He couldn't see her. So God was teaching him a lesson. And then after he started working for his father-in-law, and you know that he changed his hire ten times. You know, sometimes he said, yeah, those that are spotted will be yours and the others will be mine. And we saw, when he saw the spotted sheep being multiplied, then he would change and says, no, let's do it the other way. And so, and so on. So, I don't know if the ten times is a biblical expression to express, to express something that is beyond measure or is too much. But uh, he, he had to learn a lesson. And 20 years later, you know, he encountered God face to face. And uh, he was a converted man. And God taught him a lesson, very important lesson. So another thing we see here that is important to take into account is how God uses the consequences of sin to teach us lessons. And we can avoid them. But if we don't avoid them, God is love. If we repent, then he will work out for good. So the other case I would like to mention to you here is, let me see. You know that shortly after Jacob returned to the Holy Land, to the Canaan, he was not yet their inheritance, but he was, in a way, because God has said, God's come things that are not as if they were. And you remember that Rachel stole the, the idols of his father. It seems that those idols had to be with the demarcation of the inheritance of the lands that were ruled by, you know, they believed that God, those gods had certain territory. It seems that that's exactly what it means, but I'm not dogmatic. That's what Laban was so worried about those idols, because they will represent his right to have his cattle grazed in certain areas, because he had those idols. It seems to be what's behind that. But Rachel stole them from him, maybe trying to protect themselves from his, her own father because he came in pursuit of them when Jacob fled. I'm talking to you as people that know the Bible, my friends, so that I, I cannot go to all those scriptures. But <clears throat> and then Jacob said, let the person who stole them, let them die. And it's, I don't know, it's a coincidence, I won't be dogmatic, but we know that Rachel died shortly after that. But it's interesting that after she died, you can look in the Bible, in chapter 35, verse 16, and uh, that's when she died. And in verse 22, 
Shortly after her death, you read of chapter 35 of Genesis, verse 22, And it happened when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. So maybe he already had his eyes on Bilhah. She was probably a beautiful woman. And shortly after her mistress died, you know, Rebecca, Reuben went and went to bed with this Bilhah, who was the maid of Rebecca, of Rachel. So his father heard of it. But this sin, Reuben was the firstborn of Jacob. He was the first one to be born. Because of that sin, he also lost the birthright. That's another firstborn. I'm giving you these examples together so we learn. We are called to be the firstborn, and we are called to be overcomers. And we have these examples of Cain, and then we have the example of Esau. And then we have the example of Reuben, who was a firstborn, and he lost the birthright. You can read that in First Chronicles chapter 5. Because of that sin, he lost the birthright, and it was given to Joseph, who had shown exactly the opposite character. Joseph looked at things from God's point of view. When the wife of his boss tried to seduce Joseph, because he was a very good-looking man, then uh, remember what Joseph said, I'm not going to sin against my God. You know, your, your husband has let me be the ruler of everything he has, and even in this house, except you. I'm not going to do that and sin against my God. You see the attitude of Joseph. That's the attitude of an overcomer who looks at sin from God's point of view. But Reuben, he let his passions overrule him, and he went and violated the bed of his own father. And let's look at it in First Chronicles chapter 5. So we see... How we have to learn to look at sin from God's point of view, my dear brethren. In chapter 5 of First Chronicles, we read the following. Verse 1. Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he was indeed the firstborn. But because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel so that the genealogy is not listed according to the birthright. You know the genealogy of the Messiah came through Judah. You know that from the house of David. So we have another example here of someone who look at the temptation, Joseph, an overcomer from God's point of view. We know his old brother, he led his own instincts, what is pleasant for the flesh, and for the eyes, and the pride of life, I'm going to do it no matter what. You see examples that we should learn, brethren, and examine ourselves when we are under temptation. So that's another example. And you can, you can see that my voice is far away, but I cannot do like the mice who play when the boss is gone. So I, I don't want to take too much time, dear brethren. Chapter 49 of the book of Genesis, you see how 
Jacob pronounced this sentence upon his firstborn. He was about to die, and he called his twelve sons to come before his presence in Egypt. Chapter 49 of the book of Genesis, verse 1. And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear you, sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power, unstable as water. That means you are not able to rule your own emotions. You shall not excel because you went, you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went, how, he went up to my couch. So he blessed him, but he lost the birthright, you know. And when he speaks of Joseph, you can tell in verse 22, Joseph, a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him, but his bow remained in strength. And the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above and blessings of the deep that lies beneath. You can tell the blessing of the birthright implied prosperity. And that was given to Joseph. And Reuben, he got a blessing. He says, Excellency of dignity. We understand today, and you see the consequences of sin, my friends. He didn't lose all his blessing. He was blessed, but very in a very lower way as Joseph. You know, I was looking at a map, and I, I asked, what is the map of the Louisiana Purchase? Do you know that one-third of the territory of the United States belonged to France? It was amazing to me when I look at that. All the states that were touched by the Louisiana, the Louisiana Purchase went all the way to the state of Louisiana, all the way to Montana, in the border with Canada. And it touches the, the states of Louisiana, Arkansas, Oklahoma, part of Colorado, Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, Iowa, Wyoming, South Dakota, North Dakota, Montana, and part of Minnesota. One-third of the territory of the United States belonged to France. But Reuben lost the birthright. And Napoleon, in 1803, he was still in power, he needed money. And he decided to sell all that territory that was French, one-third of the territory of the United States. He decided to sell it for, in those days, $15 million, which is peanuts even in those days, considerable the, the, the size of that territory. Napoleon urgently needed money for what he called the French, the Great French War. 
His plan was to invade England. And he needed money to buy everything he needed to invade England. And you know, in the end, he was overcame by the British, you know, by Wellington. And look what he says here about that purchase. It was purchased by Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson. They said that that purchase prevented war with France, prevented France from taking over the West, because the Louisiana Purchase was right in the middle of the territory of the United States. So on the east side was all territory, American territory, and then you have to go through all this territory of the French to, to reach the West. So the French could have taken the West very easily because they were closer to it than Americans were. I hope you understand me. I, I, I didn't bring a map, but you can look at it. And he says, some call the Louisiana Purchase the greatest achievement any U.S. president ever made. It made America huge with ports we needed. And then it was Thomas Jefferson and uh, the French who have taken the West. And America would have been a very small part of this territory. That happened, brethren, because Joseph, which is this country, received the birthright. And Reuben, which is France, they owned that part. They lost it. And when Jacob was blessing them, said, I will tell you what's going to happen to you in the last days. That means the last day of human history. And sure enough, an amazing thing had happened. And it's, it's also, I, I can't spend a lot of time because I, used, I lived in France. I love the French people, but I, I know some other things too, you know. There is a famous novelist from the 19th century in France called Emile Zola, Z-O-L-A. And he wrote a book about a rich bourgeois, a man, you know, very rich, who was a widower. And uh, he married a beautiful young lady. But he had a grown-up son from his first marriage of the wife who died. But he was busy traveling often. And then his son ended up falling in love with his stepmother and, of course, going to bed with her. The same sin that the Reuben committed is amazing. They took that novel. They made a film with it in French. And it was Jane Fonda. I didn't know she spoke French. But she was the one chosen to do the role of the young wife that was being faithful to her husband and having an affair with his son. Same story of Reuben. Things happen. And now the double portion. You can, you're the Louisiana Purchase can show you that God works things out. And it all a consequence of sin. But France received the dignity, of course. There is not a city more beautiful in the world, I think, than Paris. It's the most visited country on the face of the earth. Is very blessed, and still today they have they have colonies in the South Pacific, in the Caribbean, in Africa. A lot of France is still a, quite a powerful nation, but it's no comparison but with the United States in power and all that because a sin of their ancestor. Consequences of sin, my friends. So God looks at things in the long range, and we can learn a lot of things from there. We have another case a little bit further on, 
And we can use the case of Moses, my friends. Let's go to Numbers chapter 20. Chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20. And we see sin has consequences and God uses them for a good purpose. Because God is love. He doesn't want us to practice sin. If we practice sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit. And God allows consequences of sin even when he has forgiven. So we don't, I don't say all the time, but we have some examples. God doesn't want us to continue to commit sin. He allows consequences. So we learn the lesson. Because if after we have made a covenant, we accepted the blood of Jesus Christ, we will sin, we'll commit mistakes, we'll transgress the law of God, we'll repent and come back to the narrow path. But if we start living in sin, grieving the Holy Spirit continually, there is a moment where the Holy Spirit gets out of this temple that is not worth, worth it to have the presence of God in it. God cannot dwell with sin. People that practice in sin after, after accepting the blood of Christ. So the Holy Spirit departs and he will never come back. Christ will have to die again for that person, like Paul explains in chapter 9 of the book of, uh, chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews. So, if you lose the Holy Spirit, brethren, because you go back to live in sin and practice sin, you will resurrect in the third resurrection to be cast. I say you and me too. If we do that, we'll be cast into a lake of fire. We are twice dead even if we are still alive. Because once the Holy Spirit departs, we never come back. So that's what God uses these things. So let's take chapter 20 of the book of Numbers, my dear brethren. Remember God gave some instruction. The people were, people were murmuring terribly. This is right before entering the Holy Land. We're talking of the 40th year in the desert. And something similar happened on the first year in chapter 17 of the book of Exodus. Well, let's look at this one. Chapter 20. It says, let's look how people were murmuring. Chapter 20, verse 4 of the book of Numbers. They were saying to Moses, let's say verse 3. And the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, if only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Why have you brought us up to the congregation to, of the Lord into this wilderness, that we and our animals should die here? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs, or vines, or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and they fell on their faces. And the glory of the, of the Lord appeared to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the road, you and your brother Aaron, Gather the assembly together, speak to the rock before their eyes, 
If you turn to Exodus 17, some people confuse these two things. They are 40 years apart. If you look at the context, shortly after this, Aaron died on the 40th year of their pilgrimage in the desert. So if you take Exodus 17, you see God instructed also Moses, but in a different way. In chapter 17 of the book of Exodus, he says, Therefore, the people contended with Moses. It was not even one year since they have left Egypt. And said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people murmured against Moses and said, Why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? You see, at the end of 40 years, they were still saying the same thing, brethren. So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand, take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Oreb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And four years later, he finds himself in the same situation. But look at the instruction God gave him. Chapter 20 of the book of Numbers, verse 8. Take the rod, you and your brother, Aaron. Gather the assembly together. Speak to the rock before their eyes. You see? Speak to the rock. You say, strike the rock like 40 years before. This is different. And they are, they are here in Kadesh Barnea, which is not the same place where the other thing happened. Those you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the road from before the Lord as he commanded him, and Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels! Must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with the rod. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Verse 12, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given to them. This was the, the water of Meribah. So it, 
kind of has the same name, but they're 40 years apart. So God let Moses suffer the consequences also of his lack of control. We know that Moses was faithful in all the house of God. And the apostle Paul repeats that for us this day in the book of Hebrews. Moses was faithful to God in all the house of God. But he made a mistake here. It was God who was there, represented, I think, in that rock. And he hit the rock twice because he lost his temper with these people. So much complaint. He was tired of it. After 40 years, and you know how many times in the book of Numbers, over and over and over, you find it's, it's consigned there, murmuring, murmuring, murmuring. It's a lesson for us too, brethren. God hates murmuring. That's how the devil seduced one-third of the angels, through murmuring, criticizing God, and convinced them to follow him. In that, God says in verse 24 of the same chapter, Aaron shall be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the children of Israel, because he rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. In chapter 3 of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses really wanted to pass the Jordan and see the Holy Land and see that beautiful land, and look how he begs God once more. And it's amazing to me how they talk to each other like a friend talks to his friend. And in Deuteronomy chapter 3, we find that beautiful relationship. In verse chapter 3, verse 21 of Deuteronomy. Chapter 3, verse 21. God has sentenced... So Moses had to suffer the consequences of his lack of self-control at that occasion. But he did not lose his reward at all, you know. God, was, God is not unjust to forget all his labor of love and that he was faithful in his house, in all the house of God. So I mentioned chapter 3, verse 22. Look what Moses said. Um, verse 23. Then I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth that can do anything like your works and your mighty deeds? I pray, let me cross over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, those pleasant mountains and the Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me on your account. He's telling the people here. And would not listen to me. So the Lord said to me, enough of that. Speak no more to me of this matter. <laughs> so, amazing how they, their dialogues are. They're, I'm amazed how they dialogue each other. And we can do it too, but not exactly in the same way. We will do it soon after the seven trumpet sounds, my dear brethren. So I want to mention one more example that you probably suspect here is in the book of Samuel, chapter 2 and verse 15. Book of Samuel. So Moses had to suffer the consequences of, of that lack of self-control, and he ended up 
disrespecting God by what he did. And uh, God let him take that lesson. So in Second Samuel, let me see if I find that, brethren, verse five, verse chapter 15, you know David had taken the wife of Uriah, who was a beautiful woman, was bathing herself, and David was walking on the roof of his palace, and he saw her, and he coveted her. He let, he wanted to satisfy the desires of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and he did not take into account the law of God at that moment. And he acted according to that, as you humans do. They understand sin by experience. He should have done it by discernment, like Joseph did. So, in chapter 12, after, you know, she got pregnant, and uh, he knew that if Uriah came, and she had been unfaithful to him, she could be stoned. And he himself also. The, the kings in Israel were, were not above the law. So his, his solution was to put Uriah close to the wall of the Ammonites and be killed. And so he, he ordered his general Joab to put he, uh, Uriah close to the, to the wall and they shoot at him probably with an arrow or throw stones and he died. But he did it on purpose. And then God was not pleased at all for this behavior of David. Chapter 12 of Second Samuel. Let's look at this for a moment. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds. Brethren, if I read this, I'm not judging King David here or Moses. I'm nobody. God has already judged them. They already will be great in his kingdom. But I said it with respect to those men. But God has put this here, recorded this for our teaching. But I'm not here to criticize King David. He's being judged already. And he is going to rule over the 12 tribes of Israel in the first resurrection. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And he grew up together with him and with his children. He ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock. He had many flocks, a lot of cattle. And from his own herd, to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared for the man who had come to him. Verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly aroused against that man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are that man. 
Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, I anointed you, king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord? You know, he wanted to please his eyes and his flesh and despise the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight. You have killed Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Remember that David says, said to Nathan, before Nathan declared this to him, that the man who took the little lamb and killed the little lamb had to pay four times. He, he knew the law of God. Let's take a look at Exodus chapter 22 for a moment, brethren. Why did David say that? Exodus chapter 22. Let's see what it says. Chapter 2, verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. You know, brethren, that David lost four children. He paid four times. He could have avoided this, brethren. And it's a profound lesson for us. We need to look at things from God's point of view, from above our desires and our impulses. If we act according to the desire of our eyes and our flesh, brethren, and despise the commandments of God, we'll pay consequences much more than people in the world are doing it constantly, because we know better. You know, David lost that little boy that was born of the adultery, died. His daughter Tamar was raped. Amon, his half-brother who raped her, was killed by Absalom, who was full brother of Tamar. And Absalom died in battle against his father. Even when he had ordered Joab, don't kill the young Absalom. He dictated his own sentence, brethren. Consequences of sin. And God allowed it to happen because God is not a respecter of persons. Well, I'm sure he never did it again, brethren. He learned his lesson. And we need to look at this and know if we sin, brethren, we will pay higher consequences than people in the world because we know the truth. And we have the Spirit of God and we have access to the throne of God and we can be close to Him and be strengthened so we overcome sin and not let ourselves be overcome by our carnal tendencies. So there was a tremendous lesson, brethren. I won't go further. You know the rest of the story. And God said, what you did in secret, one of your sons, one of your own, it was Absalom, is going to do it in public. And he laid with his concubines, although they put a tent upon the palace. You, you know the rest of the story. He had to flee from his son. I think King David's life after that was never the same, brethren. 
It is a big lesson for us. God recorded this. So we learn to look at sin from God's point of view and not from the human point of view by experiment, but by discernment. And then the last part I want to cover here, brethren. Let's go, let's go to the book of Acts first. Let's look at chapter 22, my dear brethren, if you please. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. Chapter 22, verse 4. I persecuted this way to the death. This is Acts 22, verse 4. Binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the counsel of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. And look what he also says in chapter 26, in verse 9. This Paul himself saying what he did to the brethren. Chapter 26, verse 9. Indeed, Acts 26, verse 9. Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received the authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote, my vote against them. You know, when, when Stephen was stoned, Paul cast the vote because he was part of the Sanhedrin for him to die. He was keeping the clothing of those that were stoning him. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even from foreign cities. Now, let's look what he himself says in chapter 11 of Second Corinthians. It says here, chapter 11 of Second Corinthians, verse 23. He's using a defense here from the brethren. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors, more abundant. In stripes, above measure. In prisons, more frequently. In deaths, often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. This is exactly what we were doing to the brethren. And God allow him to go through these brethren. For him to learn what he needed to learn. And for us to learn from these examples. Verse 25. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils of the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils, perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, 
in weariness and toll, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fasting often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. God said to Ananias, the one who baptized him, I will show him all what he has to suffer for my name's sake. This is not coincidence, brethren. None of the apostles were so much in prison as Paul was. We don't have records of it. They died martyrs according to what we know, like Paul did. But they didn't go through all these things. Did God allow him to go exactly to the things he have done to the brethren? And I'm sure he knew that. But he never complained. He endured until the end. And God is teaching us a lesson. So we, we be careful what we do. We know, brethren, that like I said at the beginning of the message, we are living in a time where wickedness abound and the love of many is waxing cold with so much iniquity. If we let that rub on us, brethren, we become lukewarm. And after making a covenant with Jesus Christ, we start breaking his law. And I have mentioned often pornography. I know there are brethren in the living church of God that watch pornography. They are addicted to it. If they are not faithful to Christ now, they will not be faithful for eternity. If they are sinning, they might not have lost the spirit, but they might have to go through the great tribulation. And that might happen to me. It might happen to you, brethren. We know the time is coming. People are going to be scared. And if we don't look at the situation from God's point of view, from his throne, by being close to God, we will be scared and we will react according to our human impulses. And Christ predicted it. Many will betray each other and deliver each other. God forbid that some of us will fall into that trap. But it will fall for lack of discernment because we would like to save our own flesh, our own life. And Christ said, he who wants to save his own life will lose it. So we are on the brink of seeing terrible things, brethren. We are going to be tested, and God wants to know where our heart is, if we are looking at things from his point of view, or who are simply experimenting sin with the world. So, let's be aware of these things, brethren, and let this, I pray, be helpful to you and for me.